It's good to see you. Today we are starting a new sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book of the Old Testament. It's considered to be one of the wisdom books, so it's part of the wisdom literature uh, in the Old Testament. And if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it or maybe tried to read it, you know that this is a confusing book. It's a hard book to figure out. There's all kinds of different interpretations about what is going on here. And so I'm just warning you up front that we are um, getting into a lot. Um, The reason I decided to uh, start with Ecclesiastes after returning from sabbatical is because eight years ago I preached through through Ecclesiastes. It's hard to believe it's been eight years. Um, So I figured it would be good to do something I've done before to kind of um, get back into the rhythm of things. But this week, I have to admit, I I was thinking a little bit to myself, why in the world did I choose Ecclesiastes? Um, But we'll get into all of that stuff, some this morning and as we um, make our way through the book. But because it's part of the wisdom literature, its purpose is to impart wisdom to us. Its purpose is to impart God's wisdom to us. Wisdom literature teaches us how to skillfully navigate life, how to make our way through the world of people, places, and things. As you know, life is hard. Life is confusing. And so the wisdom literature in particular comes alongside of us to mentor us in how to do life. So I want you to just think about wisdom literature in general, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, in particular that way this morning. Um, as I read the first 11 verses for us. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are with us. You're present. And our request this morning is that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, so that we might encounter the truth of this passage. I pray that as that happens, that you would 
through even this Old Testament wisdom literature that you would give us an encounter with Jesus. That whether we feel him or not in this particular moment, we pray that you would actually change us a little bit. Maybe for some of us that you would help us to know who he is for the first time. And I, I pray that you would seek us out, that you would find us, that you would teach us how to be wise, regardless of where we are this morning, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the uh, early morning hours of March 13, 1990, security guards at the Isabella Martha Stewart Museum in Boston let in two uh, men posing as police officers. They were supposedly responding to a disturbance call, they said. Once they entered, it became clear that these men were not actually police officers. What they did was they tied up the security guards, and for the next hour, they looted the museum. In all, they stole 13 pieces of art, uh, valuing um, over hundreds of millions of dollars, according to the FBI. Now, as fascinating as it is that something like this could even happen in the first place, what is more fasc fascinating to me personally is that the case remains unsolved. After 32 years, the case is unsolved. It, it's still open. The investigation is ongoing. There's even still a $10 million uh, reward available for any information that may lead to the recovery of these pieces of art. I've actually been to the museum a couple times. The first time it was before I had any knowledge of what had happened. The second time was this past spring, um, having knowledge of what happened. And uh, in some of the, the rooms of the museum, it's so bizarre because there are empty frames where these pieces of art were once displayed. And so it's fascinating to me that after 32 years, a crime at this level can still be unsolved. Now, when you read articles about the theft or if you watch documentaries like the one that came out on Netflix in 2021, you'll hear people using words like tantalizing clues, mystery, elusive, dead end. The director of the Netflix docuseries from last year said this, researching the case was like learning the game of chess. The more you know about it, the more options you see. This is part of what it means to be human, to try to solve things, put clues together. And so, like over the last year and a half since I've become aware of this, I can't help but to think, well, maybe somehow I could solve it. Maybe if I read uh, more of the articles about what happened, I'll see something that no one else was able to see. I'll, I'll be able to outdo these FBI agents. Going to the museum, you know, you're looking around, trying to just imagine how this could have possibly happened. But in the end, it's frustrating. It's elusive. And I can't, it's frustrating for me, and I have nothing to do with trying to figure it out. I can't imagine for uh, FBI, FBI agents and detectives that have been working on this for 32 years. But in the end, dead end, frustrating. The clues are elusive. The solving of the mystery is just outside of their grasp. 
The book of Ecclesiastes actually points us to how life is like this. As hard as we try to investigate, as much effort as we put into trying to assemble all of the clues to figure out the meaning and purpose of life, no matter um, how much effort, how much we spend ourselves in trying to figure life out, we can't. That's the message of this book, just telling you up front. I know it sounds cynical, it sounds pessimistic. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm hoping that I can help you to see that actually it's not pessimistic or cynical at all, but that is the point of this book, that no matter how hard we try to figure life out, we can't. It remains outside of our grasp. And there's actually, this is a big idea here, there's actually wisdom, a lot of wisdom to acknowledging this. It will actually help you navigate life if you're able to just admit this and acknowledge it and live in light of it, that you, that I, we can't figure life out. In verse 1, we're introduced to the preacher, as our translation refers to him. So verse 1 serves as the introduction to this book. Now, the Hebrew word translated as preacher is kolet. Um, might be the last time I ever even attempt to speak Hebrew in a sermon, but there it is. Um, the title of the book um, comes from this word. The word Ecclesiastes comes from a Greek word which is based on this word. Maybe you've heard the word ekklesia before. It's the Greek word that's used for church in the New Testament, and it refers to an assembly or a gathering of people. So the title of this book refers to the title or vocation of this preacher. It's someone who brings people together in order to address them. It refers to somebody who um, speaks in an assembly or a gathering for the purpose of imparting wisdom. The words of the preacher. Now, who is this preacher in particular? Well, the traditional um, approach or interpretation to Ecclesiastes is that this is Solomon. Um, verse 1 refers to the son of David. Solomon was the son of David, but um, not everyone is convinced that Solomon is actually the author of Ecclesiastes. Um, son of David can refer to anyone in the line of David. Jesus, for example, in the New Testament is referred to as the son of David. So the exact identity of the author is somewhat uncertain. But he is clearly a preacher, a speaker who is trusted to speak wisdom to the gathering of God's people. I point this out because as we read those first few words, the words of the preacher, and then you go on to read the book of Ecclesiastes, including the first chapter that I read for us this morning, I don't know, maybe you have the, the response or the reaction of, but these don't seem like the words of a preacher. These seem like the words of a cynic, somebody who is not walking with God through life. And this is one of the reasons that Ecclesiastes is so perplexing, so confusing. Um, it kind of takes on the message of what it's communicating ultimately, right? That we can't figure life out. It's almost like we can't figure Ecclesiastes out. But the preacher speaks as a pastor. He is in the context of the religious community of Israel. So this is not a cynic. 
It's not somebody who is outside of the faith, who's not walking with God. It's somebody who is actually walking with God and who is wise and is speaking wisdom to God's people. And so when it says the words of the preacher, as bizarre as some of the thoughts and reflections might be, we can trust that they are for our good. They are for the purpose of giving us wisdom to help us navigate life. This book makes Christians uncomfortable. That has been the case um, over the years. Um, And so, as I mentioned, all kinds of different interpretations are brought to bear on the book. We're not sure what to do with it. Some people say, well, some of the statements in this book are pretty unorthodox, and so really this is a person who is um, trying to speak to those who are outside of the faith to show them that the end of their worldview, if they follow through on it, life without God will lead to despair. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't take that view. I've already mentioned that. I believe that the preacher is one who walks with God and is speaking wisdom to God's people. The author comes across as skeptical and cynical at times, but what I want to suggest to you is that This book is neither cynical or pessimistic. It's actually realistic. And that's what we're going to keep coming back to time and time again as we explore this book together. Ecclesiastes, I believe, is actually very realistic. Because as we look at life, as we consider life, as we reflect on life, you know, big spectrum here, maybe we could be prone toward one of two directions. One, a worldview that is pessimistic, that we look at the world and we just say it's all meaningless, even though that's not what that word actually means. We'll come back to that. But we conclude everything is meaningless. But then on the other end, maybe we're prone to being overly optimistic, that for whatever reason we refuse to to acknowledge the hard and confusing, confusing things about life. Well, we don't have to choose Either of those options, the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is ultimately telling us. He is offering us a realistic way of viewing the world. At times, life in this world can lead us in moments to be pessimistic. And maybe there's, that's even healthy and proper. But other times, there are things that come into our lives, things that we encounter or see that lead us to be more optimistic, and that is appropriate at at times. So this preacher is realistic, and he wants to invite us into his realism. Here's how you can think of the preacher of Ecclesiastes for the next few months. He's going to be our tour guide. We're going to go on an exploration of life, and this preacher, this trusted this trusted guide who offers us wisdom is going to be our tour guide through life. We're going to wrestle with some of the big questions of life. We're we're going to get into some of those reflections that can just feel overwhelming at times in life. And the preacher is going to help us make important observations about people, about places, about things. And he's going to ultimately force us to deal honestly with life in this fallen world. Solomon, or, well, not saying he's Solomon, we don't know for sure. The preacher is not one for sentimentality. He's not one to romanticize life and project it to be something that it's not. 
And so maybe that's helpful for you to keep in mind as we step out with him as our tour guide. He calls things as he sees them in the quest for meaning. In verse 2, right off the bat, he states the thesis of the book. He tells us what the theme is. And he doesn't want us to miss it, so he actually ends the book in chapter 12 by restating the, the thesis. And it is this, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How's that for a thesis? First of all, what does it even mean? Well, Pastor Israel at the beginning of the service mentioned that some translations translated as everything is meaningless, everything is meaningless. I, I think that that is an unhelpful translation because actually the opposite is true in Ecclesiastes. What is true is that life is full of meaning, but the point is, is that we can't grasp it. And so if we go a little bit deeper into this word that the preacher uses, we find out that this word is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So big theme, all right? It's, it's stated at the beginning and the end as the thesis, and then it's, it's used um, dozens of other times in between. And the word here is, wow, I'm about to do what I said I wasn't going to do. It's hebel. All right, that's two Hebrew words. Um, I'm done for the year. 38 times this word hebel appears in the Old Testament. And it literally, the word means vapor or breath. It is meant to conjure up a picture of something that is fleeting or elusive. It's used in many places to refer to a wisp, a puff, a puff of air that disappears, a mere breath. It has to do with vapor, uh, vapor or mist. And really, it refers ultimately to the inability to grasp the meaning of life. It can sometimes express anger or frustration, and applied to a search for understanding, which is what Ecclesiastes is about, it indicates something that is elusive or incomprehensible. Now, I want you to think of a cold night, one of those winter nights when you can see your breath. You breathe out and vapor appears, but only for a short time, right? Because then it quickly disappears just like that. It seems so insignificant, so insubstantial. There's nothing to this vapor. You might even try to catch it. You know, maybe as the weather shifts, you can actually practice this. I can practice, you can try to catch the, the vapor of your breath, but you won't be able to because it's insubstantial. There it is, but then it's gone. The preacher says this is what life is like. We are limited as human beings in our ability to make sense of what's going on in life. Now, here's the thing. Ecclesiastes is about the preacher's quest to figure out the meaning of life, to try to make sense of it all. But the conclusion he arrives at, which is a conclusion that as we begin to unpack it more, offers us wisdom, it's this, that that's actually okay. We don't have to be able to figure it all out in order to live faithfully and walk uh, with God. In verse 3, after stating this thesis, the preacher asks a pretty massive question. 
What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Paraphrase, if life is vapor, if the meaning of life is ultimately elusive and outside of our grasp, what's the point of it all? What's the point of work? What's the point of going about our lives? And this phrase, under the sun, is going to be a phrase that we are going to encounter um, multiple times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that it specifically, I mean, it refers to life in this world, in God's created world, but specifically, I think that it always has in view life in this fallen world. Now, we have to just quickly review the biblical story for some help here. Um, here at City Church, we like to summarize the story of the Bible with four main headings or chapters, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And early in the, the biblical story, Genesis 1 through 3, we see creation and we see fall. Creation grounds us in the way things were meant to be. It points us ultimately to another Hebrew word, shalom, flourishing, wholeness. Um, the way things were meant to be, the way things, the way that God designed the world to function. There's harmony, harmony in relationship to God, harmony in relationship to self, harmony in relationship to others, and even harmony in relationship to the created world. But in Genesis 3, we have what takes place. It's called the fall. Human beings decide that they can do a better job of defining good and evil. And so ultimately, they turn their backs on God. And that brings devastation. It brings disharmony into relationship with God or separation. It brings disharmony or separation even into our, the relationship to ourselves, to others, and to the created world. So this is where we find ourselves, in a good world that has gone wrong in so many ways. But this is why it can be so confusing to figure life out. Because on the one hand, we're made in God's image. We were made for glory. We were made for beauty. And sometimes we get glimpses of these things, don't we? You know those moments in life, those episodes in your life that you, like you literally, maybe you even say out loud, I wish this moment could last forever. Where on the other hand, those moments or episodes in life when you maybe even scream out, I wish this had never happened. This is where we find ourselves, in the middle. Glimpses of what is good, but then also uh, experiences that point to the tragedy of the fall. And it's, that is the under the sun phrase that's meant there in this verse. Life in this fallen world, where it can be so frustrating, so confusing to make sense of things because both are true, right? There's beauty, but there's brokenness. So the author, the preacher, asks, what's the point? What's the point of our toil? Which also is interesting because at least to me, that takes me back to um, the account in Genesis 3 of the fall where God tells the first humans that because of what has happened, their toil will not be easy. And I can't help but wonder if the preacher has this kind of in the background. What's the point of our toil, especially if it's going to be hard and frustrating in so many different 
ways. Literally, that word gain is leverage. What advantage, what leverage is there? What leverage does it give us to go about our work when we can't figure everything out? We don't know exactly how it all fits together. That phrase, under the sun, is used 30 times in this book. It's the perspective from which everything is vapor, life as we know it. I wonder if we stop here and we think about, go back to this word, hebel, vapor, experiencing life as vapor. I wonder what some of your recent examples or experiences of this would be. How recently in your life have you been encountering the fallenness of life, life under the sun? And how have you been struck by your inability to make it all right, your inability to make sense of it all? The preacher of Ecclesiastes invites us to join his reflections because his reflections are our reflections. Everything that he reflects on in this book is not going to be new territory for us. They're all thoughts that we've had in one way or another. They're all questions that we've asked in some form. And so we can personalize this some. What have your experiences been recently that where you have been struck by your inability to make things right or to make sense of life? Really, the preacher wants us to come to grips with our limitations, and this is so difficult. We don't like to be limited, do we? We don't like to think that we're limited in any way. We like to think that we have control, but it actually gets scary and makes us feel vulnerable when we reflect on how little control we actually have over our lives. Now, I'm not saying we have no control. We're still meant to be responsible in our actions, and that's not what I'm referring to. But you don't necessarily have any control over what someone else might do to you. You have no control over a, um, you know, I was just, this is on my mind because uh, there's a, a hurricane, possibly a hurricane that's forming that's going to hit the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico. Those, those people have no control over that, that hurricane. They can't minimize it. They can't steer it in um, another direction. We don't have as much control as we like to think when we really begin to think about it and reflect on it. And so the preacher wants us to come to grips with our limitations. And that's ultimately where he takes us in verses 4 through 11. He, he, he brings us into his thought process. He cites the different reasons for why he just stated the thesis that he did, that life is vapor. He wants to remind us of how limited we are. So um, beginning in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is humbling. One generation replaces another. We will eventually be replaced. People come and go. I've, over the last year or so, um, it took me until um, maybe late in the summer to realize this, but I was going through something of a midlife crisis. 
where I just found myself reflecting on many of these big questions of life, um, really because of just where I am in my season of life. Um, two teenage daughters, my wife and I have now been married for 20 years, I turned 42, and so there's just a lot of transition in my life. And I just found myself in deep reflection all the time. Now, I tend to be a deep thinker anyway, but it was exaggerated. And I just could not stop thinking about all of these things, all of these questions uh, of life. But I would find myself in, if you don't have this experience, I'm not projecting it on you, so if I sound crazy to you, I, I apologize. But I would find myself in different settings. Uh, maybe I would travel somewhere. And like I would, I remember um, back in July or August, or July or August, July, it was July. It doesn't matter when it was, but it was July. Um, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, overlooking a lake, and there were just people everywhere. And then, like, I find, we're, we're, it was me with my family and our friends, and I'm just in that moment having thoughts like this, wow, you know, 100 years ago, none of these people were here. There were people, but they, were all, they all had different faces, and 100 years from now, there's going to be uh, hundreds of different people, and I'm gonna be gone, we're all gonna be gone. Like, I'm, am I crazy? All right, at least Amy Norton's with me. <laughs> we think about these things, we reflect on them. People come and go. One generation replaces another. There's no change to reality despite constant change around us, right? This is why um, James, New Testament book, which um, has a, a very much a wisdom kind of flavor to it, at one point, James says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's humbling, even sobering. But there's actually wisdom in this. Like, we don't have to run away from this thought. We don't have to be scared of it. Actually, as we lean into it, I'm not, don't reflect on it all the time, that you'll, you'll probably be depressed a lot. But there are appropriate times to reflect on these kinds of things. And when we do, I believe that there's wisdom to be found. The more awareness we have of our limitations, that we're not going to live forever, can actually lead to healthier living as we walk with God and walk with others. Verses 5 through 7 provides another support to his thesis that life is vapor. And, and here he, the preacher refers to, he, he reflects on the endless repetition of natural seasons and cycles that never produce anything new, so to speak. He, he, he's comparing the, the futility of life with the cycles we observe in nature. Winter's coming, no matter how hard some of you might want to prevent it. It's coming. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. Some of you maybe are excited because you love winter. Um, but the seasons change, and we have no control over it. He, he talks about the sun moves to the wind, then moves to the sea. And he talks about how the streams flow to the sea, but it never overflows. It never gets full. Nature keeps going and going and going with no regard for human activity. Think about the need to cut the grass. I actually like cutting my grass, but every time I cut the grass, I pretty much have this moment where I finish cutting it, put the lawnmower away, and I just enjoy 
the stewardship that I've just exercised over my yard. The grass is nicely cut, but then quickly, guess what I realize? Until next week. I'm gonna have to do it all over again. Same with weeding. You know, maybe you weed your gardens or your yard at the beginning of the season. You're gonna have to weed again. Unless you do something to prevent the weeds from going up, they're going to grow up. Nature keeps going and going without any regard for human activity. And then finally, verses 8 through 11, his final support here in this introduction to support the thesis that life is vapor. It's basically this idea that there's nothing new under the sun. People do what they've done from the dawn of time. Are you depressed yet? People do what they've done from the dawn. I feel like I'm like really in preacher mode as I'm going through these. I don't know what that means. People do what they've done from the dawn of time. And then there's this line, all things are full of weariness. All things are full of weariness. Do you feel that way right now? Or what are those things going on in your life, in your life around you that are causing you to feel that? Where you just feel weary. But not only you, you just sense that the world feels weary. And that's definitely the case. I mean, think about the, the last two years plus. This is such an accurate assessment. All things are full of weariness. There's no remembrance of former things, most likely former people. Similar idea to what we already talked about. One generation comes, one generation goes, another comes. But here, it, it kind of invites us into this idea that 100 years from now, less, we're not going to be remembered. People aren't going to be talking about most of us. In that sense, our lives are insignificant, right? Our lives do have significance, don't read into what I'm saying, but in this sense, as we think about it, it feels like our lives are so insignificant. The majority of the human race die, lives and dies in obscurity. Life is brief, it's transitory, it's short-lived, and in this way it lacks substance, like we can't make sense of it. As hard as we want to try to, to live forever under the sun in this fallen world, we can't. We don't have the control that we think we have. So as we kind of land the plane here, what exactly is going on? Like, how can this preacher be orthodox? How can he be inside the covenant community? How can he be one who is actually offering wisdom to the people of God? It's because as we reflect properly on these things, it leads us to wisdom. Because there's a sense, because everything that is said here is true, right? Now, it would be unhealthy for us if it's, these are the only things we ever dwell on and reflect on, but they are true. And the truth can lead us into wisdom. And that's what the preacher here is wanting to do. He's wanting to invite us into wisdom. He wants to say to us human beings who inevitably are control freaks, you can't control it all. But you also don't have to. The preacher wants to bring us to the end of 
ourselves, a place where none of us want to go, a place where none of us want to be. But it's a place that leads us, leads us into humility. It's the place where we can actually walk authentically with God in trust. And here's where we have to, you know, we have the advantage here of being able to see the fullness of the biblical story. And this is where we have to bring that in. Jesus, you know, when he comes onto the scene, he's referred to as the son of David. He's referred to as the wisdom of God. He's referred to as the shepherd. And what do we find in the life and ministry of Jesus? We, have, we find him imparting wisdom, speaking what is true about people, places, and things, inviting his followers um, to know what there is to know about life so they can navigate it well as they walk with God. Jesus, speaking about himself at one point, says that he, that one greater than Solomon has come. He's the ultimate wise one. And Jesus' revelation to us gives us insight into how the world works so that we can have wisdom. But not only that, as we unpack the fullness of the biblical story a little bit more, I want to end with reading a passage of scripture to you from Romans chapter 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing here, and really the context of, of Romans 8 is suffering. And the proneness that we have in the midst of suffering to feel like we're being pulled away from the love of God. And so Paul writes a lot of things in Romans 8 to provide help to people who are in that place. And in verses 18 through 22, he says this, for the creation was subjected to futility. To futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, referring to Adam, the first humans, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Guess what? That word futility, frustration, guess what word it ultimately is? Hebel. It's the same word, the same root word that's used in Ecclesiastes. It's referring to decay, the fact that this world is, uh, 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 this fallen world is passing away. But here's the beautiful truth about Jesus, the wise one. You know, the preacher in Ecclesiastes was a wise man who had a lot to offer. Obviously, his words are included in the story of scripture. But his words alone can't save us. They can help us navigate life. They can impart wisdom, but they can't save us. Yet Jesus comes not simply as a wise preacher, but he comes as one who goes to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus experiences he experiences sin, evil. He experiences all of, uh, he experiences sin and all the implications of sin under the sun. He absorbs it. He takes it upon himself so that through faith in him, we might have a way back to God and a way to navigate the world in the wisdom that is offered to us. And remember, 
Those words from Paul are in the context of a chapter that's talking about the suffering uh, uh, of life as we experience it under the sun. And so the key to life is not found within life itself. It has to come from outside the walls of this world. And that's what the beauty of the incarnation is about, that Jesus enters in. Jesus experiences hell. And he gives us his wisdom, but more than that, he gives us his life and invites us through faith to enter that life. And so what this means is that even though we can't figure out everything there is to life, we can't connect all the dots, we can't put all the clues together and with 100% confidence know everything there is to know about everything. We can't do that. But we don't have to be able to do that to live faithfully. And actually, that would be too much for us. So we can trust the one who does have the knowledge, but he's not just one with knowledge. We can trust the one who is willing to enter in, to actually walk in our shoes. And not only that, to provide for us the redemption from outside the walls of this world that will ultimately save us from Hebel under the sun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for giving to us your word, for how it reveals to us what is true about life. Even when it's hard to hear, I pray that you would soften our hearts and open our ears. And I pray that you would help us to take what we've encountered in your word this morning and apply it that you would deepen our trust in you, that you would actually give us freedom to know that even though we can't make sense of everything there is to make sense of in life, we don't have to. We can trust you. And so we pray for that, that faith. Would you grant it to us so that we can walk with you? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.